Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Living up to the best in our souls. Hmm, that's quite a topic. Almost exactly a year ago, last year, when was Pesach? Just recently, right? So last year, during Pesach, uh, as I was preparing, as I was preparing for the Seder, the first Seder, I went up to the bathroom to brush my teeth, and I looked to the mirror, and I saw a tiny dot appeared on my nose that I never had noticed before. It was minuscule, almost microscopic, as small as a pinprick. And I thought nothing of it. I ignored it. But it didn't really go away. And I showed it to my dermatologist. And um, even my dermatologist didn't think it was a big deal at all. And um, I just ignored it for a while. And then on Friday morning, July 9th, I went to the doctor to have this tiny dot as small as a pinprick removed. And it was supposed to be a totally routine procedure. But by the end of that day, it turned out that the tiny spot was actually the tip of an iceberg. And beneath it, there was an extensive infiltrative tumor. And by the end of that day, basically, I was missing my nose, a lot of my nose. And it all happened so quickly. The cancer wasn't on my arm or on my leg. It was bullseye smack in the middle of my face. My nose was gone. And I need to get a new one really fast. The surgeon who removed the cancer told me I was going to need total nasal reconstruction. I didn't understand what those words meant or who to go to for help. The whole thing was so crazy, so unexpected. And I always liked my nose. I thought I had a good nose. Okay, it was a Jewish nose. But my name is Naomi Nechama Levy. I'm a rabbi, for God's sake. Why shouldn't I have a Jewish nose? It fit me. And just like that, poof, it was gone. And I missed it. It's strange, you know? A piece of my anatomy that I never spent five minutes thinking about, and now I was mourning it. Suddenly I realized my nose was a sign of my clan. You're part of that tribe. 
the Levy nose. It looked like this. You could see the family resemblance. It was the seal of my family imprinted on my face. You know, in Hebrew, the word for face is, anybody? Panim. In English, the word face means the surface of things. But in Hebrew, panim means the interior of things. Bifnim. Your face reveals what's inside you. And now my face was disfigured, frightening, a freak show. And I kept contemplating that expression we say without thinking for a minute about its true meaning. It's no skin off my nose. It means no big deal. I can handle this. Who cares? No skin off my nose. But suddenly I was realizing that having no skin on your nose was actually a really big deal. The situation wasn't life-threatening. But I soon learned that it was full of life lessons. You know, the Jewish mystics have a concept that's called reshima. It means the imprint of a life experience, the way that it leaves an imprint upon you. If you endure something and then you just forget about it, if it doesn't change you in some way, if you don't learn anything from it, then it's as if the event never even happened, as if your life is just vanishing behind you. But if you go through something and it leaves its impact upon you, if you grow from it, learn from it, change from it, then even a challenging time becomes a blessed teacher. Well, you know, lessons are for sharing. So I'd like to share an important lesson with you tonight that I learned from my journey with skin cancer. Okay? Say sure. Are you with me? So on that Friday afternoon after my skin cancer surgery, my best friend, Dr. Helene Rosenzweig, who also happens to be my dermatologist, began helping me to find a surgeon who could perform my reconstruction surgery. Helene had gotten a list of seven plastic surgeons from colleagues, and I began yelping the names on Helene's list. I decided that if a doctor had more than three bad yelps, that was it. I scratched that name off my list. By Sunday afternoon, I had two doctors on my list and two appointments set for Monday. But later that evening, I remembered a woman named Bertie Lifson Pompan, who's a member of my Nashuva spiritual community. I said, Bertie, of course. I remembered Bertie's story. Bertie was a top Hollywood agent at the very famous firm Creative Artist Agency. She lived a fast-paced life making Hollywood movie deals with some of the most famous clients in town. And she had the perfect skill set for taking care of her clients and navigating her way through complicated negotiations. Of course, she flew first class wherever she went, and by night she'd lie in bed and read movie scripts. But suddenly, out of nowhere, Bertie developed a facial paralysis, and an esteemed, renowned LA doctor misdiagnosed her with only a temporary paralysis when it turned out that Bertie had a brain tumor.
and Bertie's life was upended. Not only that, but just a month later, her father was told he had only two months to live. But Bertie found a doctor who promised that she could give her father not two months, but two more years of quality life to live. With her dogged persistence, Bertie was able to provide her dad with that blessed extra time with his loved ones until his death. And then Bertie's brother was misdiagnosed with tension headaches. He died of brain cancer. So many tragedies. I suppose Bertie could have looked at all this suffering and loss and said, I'm cursed, or God must have it in for me. Or she could have become bitter and frightened. But instead of crushing her, Bertie's experience awakened her and transformed her life. Suddenly, Bertie saw that she could take the exact same skills that made her a top Hollywood agent, the skills she excelled at, and use them to be an advocate for patients. So Bertie woke up one day, and she quit her job at CAA and set out on her new calling to be an agent for patients, pairing up every patient with the best possible doctor for their particular illness, using the same set of skills not to make movie deals, but to save lives. And whenever I think of Bertie, I imagine the arc of her life from God's vantage point. All these years, God's been waiting patiently and saying, yes, my Bertie's making a good living and helping people, but when is she going to realize why I gave her these very powers? I imagine God saying, I've given her all the right skills. But when is she going to wake up and use them for the right reason, for the purpose I planted them inside of her? Well, these days, instead of reading scripts at night, Bertie reads medical charts and journals and all the recent articles about clinical trials. And Bertie no longer flies first class. Oh, no. Trust me. She flies way higher. So on that Sunday night, as I was searching for the right doctor to perform my reconstruction surgery, I just knew Bertie could help me and tell me what to do. So I reached out to Bertie and I told her what happened to me. In no time at all, Bertie gave me my answer. She said, Naomi, there's only one man in this whole city for you, and his name is Dr. Babak Azizadeh. That's quite a name. Thank God, Dr. Babak Azizadeh was actually one of the two names already on my list. I already had an appointment with him first thing the next morning. But even if Bertie recommended this Dr. Babak Azizadeh, I still wanted to get a second opinion. I mean, I'm Jewish after all. There was no way in the world I wasn't going to get a second opinion. So on Monday morning, I was feeling frightened and anxious. Helene, my guardian angel, took off from her work at her medical practice just to be with me and help me decide. She picked me up and we drove to Dr. Azizadeh's office in Beverly Hills. It was a beautiful office and everyone there looked so beautiful. The receptionist was beautiful. Even the patients in the waiting room were beautiful. And there I was, all bandaged up, 
with no nose. Someone called my name and led me to the examination room. And then Dr. Azizadeh entered. Right away, I could just feel his kindness. He began peeling off my bandages to examine my missing nose. I started to feel sick. I told him, I think I'm going to faint. He went and got me a little juice box, the kind that I used to give my kids to go to school with, with the straw attached. I sipped and I told him, listen, I have to tell you, I'm totally freaked out. And also, I want to make sure I never, ever see my nose the way it looks right now. Please don't show me. He promised. I could just sense his compassion. And then he explained the the situation to me. I was bracing myself for what he was about to say. There was still a part of me hoping that he'd say my nose could simply heal up on its own with time. Well, Dr. Azizadeh sat in front of me and he said, listen, your skin cancer was very extensive and you're going to need to have three separate surgeries over the next six weeks. My heart was racing. What? He told me about my tissue loss. He was gently trying to tell me there was very little left there. And then he explained what my first reconstructive surgery was going to entail, how he was going to have to take a chunk of my scalp and a chunk of my forehead, and he was going to be flipping it all over and stitching all that to my nose, and he'd be taking cartilage from my ears to rebuild my nose. He said the first surgery where the cancer was removed was already behind me, and that now I just had to gear up for three more to go. My eyes were tearing up. Basically, for the next six weeks, there would be an elephant trunk going from my forehead to my nose. It would be a horrifying sight. But Dr. Azizadeh promised me that in the end, in seven weeks, that I would have a nose. And that's nothing to sneeze at when you're sitting there with no nose at all. (laughs) Helene and I took in everything Dr. Azizadeh said. And then we thanked him, and then we left, and we drove to the second doctor on my list. For tonight, let's call him Dr. Smith. (laughs) He too came highly recommended. He had already agreed to do my surgery and had already cleared away his schedule to fit me in. They called me in to see Dr. Smith. He too was extremely kind and extremely patient. He explained how he would do the surgery. I was listening to everything Dr. Smith had to say. And then suddenly he asked me, have you consulted with any other doctors? I said, well, yes, I just came from Dr. Azizadeh's office. And Dr. Smith, who was very highly respected, looked at me. He took a deep breath and was quiet for a minute. And then he said, I want you to go to him. I want you to go to Dr. Azizadeh. He's better than me. I was stunned. Have you ever heard a doctor say that? Later that night, Dr. Smith called me at home. He said, don't get me wrong. I'm really good at what I do. I just want the best for you. 
And I don't want you to ever to look back and regret that you could have gotten a better outcome. Dr. Azizadeh is the best, and that's what I want for you. And then he said to me, Rabbi Levy, in your words, you told me that you were freaked out, but that's not the person I saw. I just want you to know that. I was so moved. I said, I can't thank you enough for your care and for your humility. He was quiet for a minute, and then he said, does Dr. Azizadeh know who you are? I didn't understand what he meant, and he said it again. You need to make sure. He needs to know who you are. Okay, I promise, I said. But when I hung up, I asked myself, who am I? Soon, an answer to that question would come to me. So all roads led to one man, Dr. Babak Azizadeh. I'd have to put my nose in his hands. It was Monday night, and my first surgery was going to be that Wednesday. On Tuesday, Dr. Azizadeh called me to talk about the surgery. He said it was going to be around a four-hour surgery under general anesthetic. And then I remember I asked him, listen, can't you just give me my old nose back? He said, no, I can't. That's impossible. I can't give you back what God gave you. But I promise I will give you the best nose I can give you. I said, but still, can I send you photos of my old nose? He said, sure. When we hung up, I went on my laptop looking for close-ups of my old nose. Some were seriously unattractive, but who cares? I wasn't submitting headshots to a modeling agency. I wanted him to see the nose I was born with. I imagine that many of his patients want him to make changes to their noses. But all I was hoping for was just to get mine back. I started to attach photo after photo, and I emailed them all to Dr. Azizadeh. I felt so helpless. Sending the photos was the only act of control I had. I couldn't sleep Tuesday night. I was terrified. And my surgery wasn't until 5 PM on Wednesday. No food or drink all day long. It was like a dress rehearsal for Yom Kippur. <laughs> Wednesday morning, I was a bundle of nerves and tears, and the fear seemed to get worse with every passing hour. My mind was going to dark places. The shock of losing my nose had lifted and been replaced by a recognition of what I was about to undergo. What can I tell you? I'm not a stoic warrior. I'm a Brooklyn warrior. I was pacing back and forth, trying to pass the time. I was spinning out. At last, it was time to head off to surgery. I grabbed my sidur and a copy of a book of prayers that I wrote back in the year 2001 called Talking to God. And my husband Rob and I drove off. In the car, I was starting to have a sinking feeling I couldn't seem to find my center. You know, I've been a rabbi for 26 years now, 
And I know the gift God has given me to help other people, to pray for others, to comfort others. But as the day wore on, I wasn't sure that those same prayers could help me or that I could help myself. I was starting to feel like an imposter, like one of those commercials I grew up watching on TV when I was a kid. An actor would come on TV and say, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. When the chips were down, I was worthless to help myself. I was a frightened child, helpless, tearful. I was failing myself. I felt like I didn't have the resources. I worried that I might not have the resources. I'm not a rabbi, I thought. I just play one. When I got to the surgical center, my husband Rob was with me and my friends Helene and Carol. Helene's known me since I was 11 years old, Carol since I was 14. I was so touched that they wanted to be there with me. They were sitting there in the waiting room, and I knew that I needed to go pray. So I went into the courtyard with my seat door, and I started to pray the traditional words, I place my soul in your hand. And then they called me. It was time to go to pre-op. I was still a wreck. Now I was in my hospital gown. A nurse put the IV needle in my hand. My heart was racing. Rob, Carol, and Helene were with me. And though their presence and love and support were certainly a comfort, I needed something more from them. I reached for talking to God, and I opened it up to the chapter of healing prayers. Of course, when I wrote those healing prayers back in 2001, I didn't write them for myself. Of course not. I wrote them thinking of all the sick people I've prayed for and tried to help, never thinking that I'd never need them myself. The person who wrote those words didn't ever imagine praying them. And then right there in the pre-op room, I opened the book and started to pray. Rob, Helene, and Carol encircled me, and I began reciting the healing prayers I'd written 15 years ago out loud. As I prayed, I didn't recognize my own hand in those prayers. It was as if the me from the past had somehow channeled the exact words I needed to hear right now. It was me talking to me. I just took the prayers in like somebody had given me a gift. I cried. Things started shifting. The air in the room, even. And then I said to Rob, Helene, and Carol, now, I'd like you all to put your hands on my head and say this blessing over me. I closed my eyes, and I could feel their hands all over me as they recited the blessing from my book. Then I said, please, don't take your hands away. I need to meditate now. Outside my tiny pre-op room, I could hear all sorts of noises going on. It's a surgical center. People talking, footsteps, doors opening, doors closing. 
but you could hear a pin drop inside our tiny room. They all stood over me, surrounding me, perfectly still, with their hands on me, and I began to meditate. There was sort of an electric feeling between us, the vibration of it, and energy was circulating around and around. All of us were fused as a single prayer, tight, intimate, so powerful. Nobody broke that intense energy of prayer. No one moved. And soon, we weren't even in that room anymore. No more sounds coming from anywhere. The whole room just levitated. We were flying to a higher place. It was beautiful and bright, floating, rising. I had no idea of time. Time just melted. Just then, a nurse opened the door and she said, whoa. She could immediately feel what we were feeling. She said, something really powerful is happening here. And she just backed away and closed the door behind her. My heart was still beating hard in my chest. With my eyes closed, I repeated in my mind over and over again the Hebrew verse that is my mantra. Min hametza karatia anani bamerkavya. Min hametza karatia anani bamerkavya. I called to God from my narrowness, and God answered me with a vast expanse. I called to God from my constriction, and God answered me with wide open spaces. I called to God from my need, and God answered me with grace. Min I kept repeating this verse over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, I crossed a river. From drowning in waves that were engulfing me to the purest, stillest water I have ever seen. It wasn't something I did. It just happened. Grace. All that turbulence was gone, and all I felt was absolute stillness. The stillness was so real, so palpable, so pure, so crystal clear. You lead me beside still waters. You restore my soul. And then I heard a voice. Before I go on, I want you to know three things. Number one, I'm not psychotic. <laughs> At least I don't think I am. Number two, there were no drugs going into my IV at that point. And number three, I'm not saying this figuratively or metaphorically. I'm telling you, I heard a voice. I heard it loud and still. It echoed through me. The voice said, 
Know who you are. Know who you are. And I understood immediately what that meant. I'm not an imposter. I don't play a rabbi on TV. I'm not a frightened child. I'm a child of God, whole and sustained and loved and strong and with resources that I didn't even know I had. I could be a rabbi to myself. Suddenly, I saw that in my soul, I'm built that way. There was no seam between who I am and who I am. And I don't think I understood that until that very moment. And suddenly I flashed on what Dr. Smith had said to me on the phone about what I needed to make sure Dr. Azizadeh knew. Dr. Smith had said to me, he needs to know who you are. And it wasn't only that I had somehow moved beyond fear. I now saw from my place of stillness that I not only had the power to bless myself, I understood that I had the power and a sudden desire to bless others at that very moment. When I opened my eyes, I knew that was the necessary next step, to bless the people around me from my place of blessing. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So right then, my nurse came in and I said to her, I'd like to bless you. I could tell she was sort of taken aback, not something she hears every day, but she wanted my blessing, and I blessed her. And then my anesthesiologist came in, and I said a prayer over her, and I could see that she was taking it in in the most open, beautiful way. And then Dr. Azizadeh walked through the door. I told him, I just said a prayer over you, And then I blessed him. I remember looking at him in the eyes and saying, I know who you are. I know you're not only a doctor, you're an artist. And I know you will give me the best possible outcome. I believe in you. I place myself in God's hands, and I place myself in your hands. I place my faith in you completely. And God bless you for the holy work you do. God bless you and thank you for taking care of me. I had total trust in this remarkable man. He took my hand and he said, Rabbi, it's my honor to be able to do this for you. Right then, I could feel it in the very depths of me. I'm ready now. I was in the place of still water. Calm, trust, faith, beauty, God, connected to my soul, blessed.
The surgery took nearly four hours. When I opened my eyes in recovery, I could tell I must look like hell. Staples in my scalp, an elephant trunk connecting my forehead to my nose, a hole in my forehead that was so deep you could just see my skull. I had a Van Gogh thing going on with my ear. If you saw me right then, you would probably say, here's a person who must be so miserable, feeling so helpless. But when I opened my eyes, all I felt was gratitude, euphoria, ecstasy even. Through a haze, I saw Dr. Azizadeh standing over me. And I know that I was seriously out of it and rambling nonsense. But I clearly remember saying to him, thank you. God bless you. And then his fellow, a woman named Dr. Irvine, walked in with a bright, warm smile. She said to me, you know, Dr. Azizadeh was so meticulous during your surgery. And did you know that he had a photo of you hanging up during the whole surgery? <laughs> I must have bombarded poor Dr. Azizadeh with maybe 15 photos of me the night before. I wondered what photo was hanging up during my surgery. She said, oh, it was quite a sight. A photo of you wrapped in a prayer shawl with your eyes closed and your hands were on your son's head, blessing him. Know who you are, I whispered to myself, still in a haze. I crossed a river that night. And the strange thing is, I've never gone back. It's been over a year now. And it's a place I don't ever want to leave. A knowing I was given, like an inheritance. But instead of it coming as a ring from your mother that belonged to your grandmother, it came from heaven. And I don't want to lose it. And at this moment, on this night, all I want to do is share the inheritance I received with you, to bestow it upon you. Are you ready to receive it? Are you? Do you mean it? Here it is. Here it is. Know who you are. Know that there are internal resources planted inside you to do things you can't even imagine you're capable of. That's my prayer for you. A big eye-opening change. Know who you are. Let these four words become your mantra. Don't set your sights too low. Understand what you're capable of. You are a child of God.
You are strong. You are loved. You are not alone. What are you praying for? What do you want? What's your big ask from the soul of souls? God has great hopes for you. You've been given the power to go to a very sacred place. So for God's sake, listen. Listen for a voice, a voice that will tell you something about you that you didn't know before. Listen for it. Know who you are, not the title that's printed on your stationery. It's not written on your diploma. It's not listed on your resume. It's imprinted on your soul with vision, clarity, and expansiveness. Your soul's voice is God's call to you. Daily, God is saying about you what I imagine God was saying about Birdie. Look at the gifts I've given you. When are you going to use them for the purpose I planted them inside of you? When? Many of us experience that nagging feeling that we've somehow missed our lives, that maybe we've slept through them, that our life happened without us, that we've never fought for it. That nagging feeling is your soul talking to you, trying to wake you up. When we take the time to look back on our lives, we usually find ourselves regretting two types of sins. The first are sins that we committed. The actions that you regret, I lied, I hurt someone. Actions that you still have the power to repair. But the second type of sins are much tougher to deal with. These are all the things you haven't done, all the things you could have done, all the things you were born to do but didn't do. How do you repair that? I'm not talking about some bucket list of all the adventures you meant to have. I'm talking about the apology you never made, the forgiveness you didn't offer, the words you never spoke, all the goodness you intended to do, the person you hoped to become, the mission your soul was sent here to accomplish. These sins are the most painful of all to face. An unlived life? How do you repair that? What's the dream or the prayer you've been too frozen or afraid to speak of? What yearning have you been too frightened to fight for? What has your soul been longing for? What do you want? And can you capture a vision of how to achieve it? I'd like to help you with the vision piece, okay? Most of us wear or drive or carry things with designer labels on them, right? 
We are walking billboards for the companies that make our clothing, our shoes, our purses, our watches, our cars, as if they say something about who we are. I want you to know that there's a designer label on you right now, and trust me, it doesn't say Prada or Porsche. It's written across your forehead and across your heart in big capital letters, G-O-D. The Creator's seal is upon you. Let it inform your actions, your thoughts. God's seal is on you, in your essence. You were created to become a walking advertisement for the one who designed you. You are unique, one of a kind. There has never been anyone like you. Know who you are. This is the lesson I learned from my first reconstruction surgery. This is the inheritance I received, and I am so honored to share this teaching with you. There can be a very big distance between who you think you are and who God knows you are. Yes, there was still a seven-week journey ahead of me, and two more surgeries, and many more lessons to learn and to share. But the incredible Dr. Azizadeh restored me and blessed me with the ability to stand before you tonight and to re-enter the world with pride. And for that, I will be forever grateful. The seal of the Creator is on you. God is waiting for you to finally use the gifts that are already planted inside you. A new time of blessings is waiting for you. Know who you are. Sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> it happens a lot to me. <laughs> yes. So do you think something bad has to happen to someone in order for them to wake up? No, I don't think something bad has to happen. But I think we have to be willing and prepared to listen to a voice calling deep inside. And I think, as I said in the dinner, it's farther from us than we can ever imagine. 
and closest, closer to us than we might ever know. So it's all about the art of listening. What if I don't believe in God? Or if I find the God project to be so abstract um, that it can't be transported with me as a spiritual practice? You know what? I want to write, I think my next book is going to be called Prayer for Atheists. Because um, atheists don't frighten me or cause me to stumble. You know, it's so interesting. I once read a Hasidic teaching that goes like this. God loves the atheist. Why does God love the atheist? Because if a person is in trouble and they turn to a believer for help, the believer might say, I'll pray for you. The atheist has no recourse but to help. So God loves the atheist. But in all seriousness, you don't have to believe in God to hit upon the internal resources that are planted inside you and to have an eye-opening awakening to understand what you're all about, what your potential is, and too often, we don't give ourselves the chance. We just underestimate ourselves. We think, I'm too weak, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too this, I'm too that. We find a million excuses instead of recognizing <coughs> what's planted inside of us, whether it's planted there by the divinity or whether it's your internal inheritance, your greatness. And you don't need God to show you your greatness. You need a listening heart. You need ears and eyes. And you also need to see it's not really, prayer isn't really about what I need. Ultimately, prayer is about where am I needed. And when you start to unite, what do I need with where am I needed? Very little will stop you. Very little. Rabbi, have you had the benefit of reading your own writing to help you realize who you were? And many of us in this room may have years of experience either in our professional careers or through life experiences to help us know who we are. What advice do you give to young people in helping them find who they are? You know, I can't say for sure that this is one of the hardest times in human history for young people, but I certainly would say this is a uniquely difficult time for young people. And I see it over and over and over again, young people just directionless coming out of college, not knowing what they want to do, who they are, what they're about. You know, they were taught, our society said, do what you love. But sometimes what you love, you can't make a living at. And they haven't been taught to be practical, a lot of them. Or a lot of them have been um, brainwashed by this century's gold rush, you know? 
that they're going to make it big with a startup. But you know what? The numbers of people who make it big with a startup are minuscule. The rest of them are, you know, what? So it's really the same, you know, all right. I, I think that sometimes people, young people, have these grandiose plans, and they forget to just look and take stock of who they are, what their gifts are, and what they can give to the world, and how to do it. And I spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time counseling rabbis and counseling um, college students and post-college students. And another category of people that I end up counseling a lot are aspiring actors. And uh, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like, at what point do you say, I'm 40 years old, and I don't have two nickels to rub together, and what, what was I born to give to this world? L.A. Where am I looking? It sounds like God. I heard a voice. Yes. Uh, I was particularly uh, uh, moved by your, your... Can I just say something? I was, <laughs> and then you can talk. Um, I was, my husband and I, my, uh, we're going to the Jewish, the Jewish film festival in LA, or it was a Jewish movie in LA. Uh, it was about... It was about laughter and the Holocaust, of all things. But anyway, we went to a restaurant just before the movie, and all of a sudden, a woman like, was making a beeline for me, which is not unusual. It happens. You know, people who think I know them, but I don't know who they are, but they know me, you know, whether they've come to one of my services or something. She's like, <gasps> and I was like, uh, like a deer in the headlights. You know, I have no idea who she is, none. Like, just... Completely, I have no idea who she is. <coughs> She's coming at me, coming at me, coming at me. Naomi! It's Miriam! We went to elementary school together in Brooklyn. I said, oh my God! She goes, well, why did you get a nose job? <laughs> you always had such a nice nose. Okay, that was my joke. Okay, go on. <laughs> Okay. I was particularly moved tonight when you, you spoke a lot about the, it sounded to me like there was a lot of power transformation that came about through the presence of close friends when you had that powerful experience when the nurse backed out of the room, the way you spoke about Dr. Azizi. <laughs> You're not the only one who can't pronounce it. Aziza Day. Okay. Uh, I told him I was going to talk about him tonight. <laughs> so what is the role? It sounds like in order for you to come to this moment and this, this transformation that you experienced. He's Jewish, by the way. Persian Jew. Go on. So what will other people, others help play in your ability to come to this place? Because this, it seems as though you, you have close, supportive friends uh, and warm relationships here that allowed you to experience this. You work on your own. And I wonder... How does that play into the 21st century when so many people are living independent lives and lack of community structure? It seemed to me, from unless I misunderstood, but from what I heard from you, is that you gained a lot of clarity 
I do feel very blessed with love and blessed in friendship. And even though I come from Brooklyn and I live in LA, just by chance, by, you know, by a wonderful coincidence, my, my two closest friends are people who have known me. In that they live in LA, they've known me since I was a child. And I was actually talking, you know, Dr. Azizadeh said that he'd never seen a situation of a patient surrounded by so much love. He'd never seen the intensity of it, of just, the, just them weeping, you know. Um, but what I wrote, if I had talking to God, if I had the book with me right now, does anybody? <laughs> you have it. What I wrote, the prayer that I wrote, Thank you. I'll give it back. No, it's okay. Um, what I read I'll read you the preamble and I'll read you the prayer because I think that might help you. Even with all that love around me, do you know what I felt? Alone. It's natural to be frightened when we become ill. We feel vulnerable. We worry. We want to know that everything will turn out all right. We sometimes feel alone even when loved ones are by our side. The illness lies within us and no one else knows exactly how we feel. Prayer has the power to transform our fear into faith. It reminds us that we are never alone. Everything we are, body and soul, is in the hand of God, whose presence fills the universe and who is as close to us as our own breath. No matter what this unpredictable world sends our way, with God by our side, we can find the strength to confront our fears. So pray and welcome God's healing power. And this was a prayer, one of the prayers I said, I'm sick, God, and I'm frightened. I feel so alone. I'm scared of doctors. I'm scared of pain and uncertainty, of feeling helpless. Be with me, God. Be there when others fail me. Be my strength and my protector. Be my friend. Hear me, God. Heal me, God. Lead me back to strength, God. Back to health, back to life, back to you. Amen. Anyway, there's several, there's a whole cycle of prayers. There's prayers before surgery, prayers after surgery. All I can say is that it's, it's certainly true that I do feel blessed in friendship and blessed in love. And it is also true just what Rabbi Shmuley was saying before I spoke, you know, the lecture he's about to give about how we're disconnected. But one of the things I've learned, um, I was speaking to, who, where's Barry? Can you stand up a second? Hi, Barry. So she came up to me right before this lecture, 
and said that she was ill on Yom Kippur and unable to go to shul. And she turned on her computer and found my service broadcast live. And um, she's part of my virtual community. And even though technology can distance us from one another, it can also create closeness. And I was actually sharing with Rabbi Shmuley that Nashuva, my spiritual community, um, endeavored to begin webcasting Kol Nidre services probably about a decade ago. This year we had 70,000 people live with us online for Yom Kippur. And if you could see the letters that I receive, but more than that, I was telling Rabbi Shmuley, there's a live chat going on during the service with people comforting one another online, telling each other, I feel lonely, I had a loss, I miss my dad, this and that. And it's some kind of world that's happening. The world is certainly getting colder and it's getting warmer at the same time. So I think that there are ways that we can create community even when our friends are far away or even when we feel alone, that there are ways to reach out. Shared with me with someone in the hospital uh, towards the end for the trial who reached out to me and said, Thank you for giving my father the last week of service. She said, If you could see my daughter on her grandfather's lap singing these prayers with him on, when he's in hospice for his last Yom Kippur, you will know what a mitzvah you've done. Um, Mike, you've mentioned trust, Rabbi, and um, I was wondering how gratitude plays into the process that you're talking about, and if and how it did for you, um, and if it does. You know, I I. Uh, Okay, it's a blessing and a curse. I live on Venice Beach, and I have, I'm prone to skin cancer, obviously. But um, I'm much more cautious. I never was, look, I mean, I'm, a, I'm from Poland. I was never somebody who uh, was uh, sunbathing. It wouldn't work anyway. I would just turn pink like a, like a pig. Um, but almost every day, five out of seven days a week, I ride my bicycle on the water for about 12 to 18 miles. It's my meditation, it's my, it's a center, it's my life, it's my lifeline. And every single day, I have a practice that I call my gratitudes. So I, I might ride in one direction quietly, but on the, other, on the other side, when I'm turning around, I do my daily gratitudes, and I literally do, I just out loud, you know? Thank you, God, for this beautiful day, for this sky, for this sand, for this water, for my family, for my life. For, you know, and I think it's so important. I say Shehechianu 
every single morning. It's just part of my daily practice. I say Shekhianu every day of my life, ever since that surgery. And I do feel it. And I think, you know, scientists have told us that the key to happiness is that one word, gratitude. And it's something that is so important not only to have, and it's not something that you're born with, you know, like it's a practice that I have, that you actually have to develop that muscle, but it's a muscle that's so important to develop in our children. Gratitude, because it's so easy to spoil them and for them to think that, you know, the whole world belongs to me and it was, was created for my sake, you know? So thank you for uh, raising the whole issue of gratitude. Oh, believe me, we live in a really messed up world. And I'm not, uh, you know, naive to say that all we have to do is think happy thoughts and, uh, and good will happen. And, I, and, I, and I'm not naive enough to think that, uh, that everything's going to work out fine just because we pray or just, you know. And, and one of the things I had to learn the hard way in my own life, I don't know if you've read any of my books, but when I was a kid, um, my father was murdered in a mugging. And one of the things I learned was, you know, I had walked around thinking, uh, believing in all the things I was taught in, <laughs> in yeshiva. You know, the, I believed the prayers. That... That God looks over, looks after the righteous, you know? And to me, it all sounded like lies. I mean, it's day after Yom HaShoah, after all, right? The whole thing sounded like a bunch of lies. I couldn't say, when I would get to that passage in the Amidah, I just, I couldn't pray it. It was gone. I just, I couldn't say it. Until I saw much, you know, many years later, when I was in college, that you know, maybe God's job description isn't evil prevention. <laughs> you know, I used to think it was. And I think it's a sad commentary about me, about all of us, who suddenly something happens in your own life, and you say, why me? When the truth is, if I had ever opened the newspaper any day of the week with real heart, I would have understood something, that every single day, innocent, beautiful people, children are dying and suffering at the hands of awful people and also at the hands of horrific diseases, natural disasters, but also just human cruelty. I think it, maybe it's a little bit simplistic for me to think, oh, if they only believed that the world would be a better place. But you know what? I just finished writing a book about 
really my deep belief that within us there is a compass, a compass that's always pointing us to the ways that we are connected, to the ways that we are all related, to the ways that we all are brothers and sisters. And it is my prayer and it is my hope that humanity will uncover the image of God that's planted within and that the day will come when when people of all races and races and faiths will join together in some sort of meta religion a religion we can all agree on not to lose our particularism but to agree on certain tenets of a faith in the oneness of all creation you know and then the words of Aleinu will come true. On that day, God will be one, and God's name will be one. Amen. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybatemadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.